0: So this is Scott Morey with GPG Advisors. This is another RE Insight series, and we're sitting in Chicago in your new offices, I think. Are yeah. Are you your new offices? They look nice. I've not been here. Thanks. Is it a different building you move next door yeah, or no? Yeah, so from
1: the South Tower to the North Tower. Okay, that's what the I thought. The building, yep. I not far.
0: I, I thought I walked in the wrong one. But <laughs> anyway, Constance, for those that don't know, is the founder and managing partner of Modern Ventures. Modern Ventures, which we'll talk more about, is an early-stage investment fund, focused on technology companies innovating in and around real estate, mortgage, finance, insurance, and home services. So thanks for the time.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: And I think we met initially two years ago when I had a real job, I think. Two or three years ago, yeah. Two, three years ago. I think it was through uh, Michael, actually, the CFO, right? Mm -hmm. You guys had crossed paths. So I want to go, and we had a conversation before, so you're saving me from asking stupid questions, is back to where you grew up in kind of high school and you were saying you were up in Minnesota. Can you just talk about where you grew up and that atmosphere and, and what that was like?
1: Uh, well, it was very cold. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's mostly what I remember about high school is being cold. Um, you know, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, Jefferson, Bloomington, Minnesota, so a suburb out of Minneapolis, you know, nothing necessarily uh, spectacular about yes. my, <laughs> my experience there. Um, you know, in fact, I, I did I, I did I really hated the cold weather in Minnesota. so I always kind of knew that when I graduated, I, I wanted to get out, not that I not that I got out to anywhere all that much warmer and not that I've actually moved anywhere thats um, that's been that much warmer, but sure. when you start with Minneapolis, kind of everything is at least a little bit better. Yeah. So um, So let's see. So I moved to um, from Minneapolis, I went to undergrad at Boston University. And um, Boston University, I, um, I was focused on, I guess I started in just kind of the liberal arts college and, and started moving into uh, management information systems. That's where I ended up getting most interested in. Um, when I was a sophomore in college, uh, I wanted to go to Italy on spring break with my friends. Mm-hmm. And my mom told me, great, go get a job. <laughs> so um, so I looked in the paper, because that's what you do back then for jobs, and there's this advertisement that said you can make thousands of dollars a week being a real estate agent. So I um, went and talked to the, I uh, went and answered the ad basically, and, they, and sure enough, they told me I could make thousands of dollars a week, and um, he'd sponsor me to study for the test and whatever. So instead of going to Italy for spring break, I went back home to Minneapolis, and I went and got my car. Yeah. and brought it back to boston and um, started my career or started started out a career as a real estate agent um, which i did for 3 years
0: yeah park realty associates yep. which is only up in that part of the world up in boston i think yeah. maybe they yeah, I, I don't just, think so either.
1: i think it was a single office yeah, yeah.
0: but how did you pick boston to go to school like what made you what did you have friends that had gone there There's yeah, something I inspired had a, you.
1: i had a friend i had my my cousin um, went to school there yeah. um cousin's 8 years older than me it was probably the best school that I had applied to. I, for some reason, really wanted to go to Boulder, Colorado, for school, and that mm-hmm. was a really that particular year was a really hard year to get into Boulder. I got I got waitlisted. My my now husband, who I didn't know back then, but we were the same age. Um, yeah. He he got fully fully denied, and <laughs> I got waitlisted. <laughs> and, um, yeah, my safety schools were the you know Minnesota, Wisconsin schools, but you know yeah. so uh, there might have been a couple others in the mix, but, but Boulder's yeah, so. normally skiing.
0: People are I mean, it's beautiful. Skiing, the, yeah. the, the skiing, right?
1: Yeah. So, so. Um, so yeah. So years later, my husband and I met in Boston, but um, but we uh, but yeah. So so it was the best school I applied to. It was a you know I knew about the city. It was a fantastic city, a fantastic experience, and yeah. you know I think that it th- you're probably very formative. You know I think that. Um, at least at the time, it was the most international college in the country, um, with interna- most international students. And it really taught me to think internationally. So back then, when I went to school, um, you know, Japan was taking over the world like China is taking over the world now. And so uh, we had to take a foreign language, and so I decided to take Japanese. And um, so qu- pretty quickly, if, you know, if you've s- tried to speak the language at all, you kind of realize that in order to really understand it, you need to actually be there. So I studied abroad in Tokyo, um, and my idea was that I would have, you know, be Tokyo or you know international businesswoman and in, in Japanese big background. And about you know a week into being in Japan, you realize that as as a woman, as an American, that just wasn't going to happen. Hmm. Um, and I don't I don't think a whole, you know the culture is you know just even that much further behind as far as um, yeah I guess women in business there and. Uh, Anyways, it was still a really fantastic experience. I lived with two different families who are like my family now, and um, you know I've been back there more than a dozen times since, and uh, still speak a bit of Japanese. So it's enough to get around. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty impressive, um, and I think it's been you know just uh, yeah just a formative formative part of my life and my experience.
0: Yeah, you know, when you go you go back the time when you're at Boston in, in university and you think about the degree you picked, how'd you pick that actually? Like it wasn't quite early. Like if you picked that in the eighties, it was early, but it had turned, like I was thinking back in those days, I was with um, Arthur Anderson and it was they couldn't hire enough people kind of with MIS degrees but there weren't very many offered to of those degrees I think yeah. in North America. it I mean, was that part of the decision or you made the decision to go there first and then pick that degree? No,
1: I, I went there first I didn't really, but I mean sort of like the tech thing was just you know so it's just a little bit before the dot com days mm-hmm. and so the the tech uh, the tech world was just starting to really emerge in a lot of ways. So yeah. I think the combination of being, you know, leading up to, a, I mean, coming out of a recession, I guess, when I went to, my sister graduated from, she's four years older than me, she graduated from school and couldn't get a job. So when I went to school, we were just coming out of recession and technology was bringing us out of a recession. Mm. And so that was cool. That was hot. That was exciting and new. So um, I think that's really probably where my interest stemmed from. And so, you know, going back to being a, a realtor, you know, I was, I was doing that as my, my job to help put myself through school, but I was also really focused on this tech thing. So I was teaching myself mm. HTML. I built our mm. company's first website, which was a super crappy website, but we were the first one that had one. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and yeah, I, um, you know, at the end of the day, I uh, was close to graduation and touring around some clients and they were telling me about this great startup that they were at. And, um, and I said, well, that's what I want to do
0: yeah <laughs> so so molecular do I say it right or? um I started at no.
1: a company called account four
0: ah okay
1: yeah and then went to um molecular afterwards yeah. but yeah so account four was sort of a precursor to um a SaaS model today of kind of professional services mm-hmm. automation so yeah. time project tracking based software and what um, were they called
0: not service bureau they called it
1: it was called Account 4. And account then 4. No, I
0: mean the cloud-based of it. Like, how oh, do you articulate that? Um, the words change over time.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess it was the, what did we call it? Um, yeah, I don't I remember we that one <laughs> I think
0: before that it was Service Bureau. And then it advanced the to the something model, else. But, yeah. I think you might be, yeah. I, think, I think you're right, actually. Yeah so, um, yeah, so,
1: yeah, so sort of the, that was, that was the early days. And then, um, it, yeah, it, when the kind of online got to be fast enough that that would work.
0: Right. So, and that was in Boston still.
1: I was still in Boston. Okay. And then, um, yeah. So I was doing a lot of traveling, a lot of consulting back then. Um, so I spent a year in Bloomington, Illinois, doing uh, consulting at State Farm. Okay. And a lot of, it was a lot of the Y two K things. So there was like twenty of us that were twenty something in mm-hmm. Bloomington, Illinois, State Farm and. You know, they would basically, you know, tr- pay for our travel, pay for anywhere we wanted to go. It was, you know, kind of Boston or equivalent. So mm-hmm. we would, and we were all, you know, basically single and <laughs> having fun. So we'd go travel around to, you know, we'd go to Jamaica for a weekend. We'd go to Paris for a weekend. We'd go, you know, we basically yeah. had no living expenses and um, we'd just travel around. So that was fun. But um, after a while, it gets old for anybody. And uh, so, so I went back to Boston. Um, I had no travel expenses for... Two years of my, or no living expenses for about two years of my life. Yeah. So when I got back to Boston, I, I bought a place um, in Charlestown, which was up and coming mm-hmm. at that at that time. So I bought a fixer-upper workerman's cottage that and did all the destruction myself and hired someone to help mm-hmm. rebuild it. But that was my first foray into kind of that aspect of real estate mm-hmm. as well. Um, and uh, and then joined molecular and and um, you know really, what we were focused on was a time when I equate to, which is similar to now in the real estate space. back then was a time when all the fortune 500s were like, "Oh, this internet thing. I guess it's, I guess this is here. Yeah. We got to figure out what to do about it." And so in those days, I was doing uh, strategy and um, project management, so strategy consulting and project management and helping the fortune 500s get online. so. Mm-hmm as a consulting at places like Financial Times, and Blue Cross Blue Shield, and uh, Fallon Healthcare, like major major companies in, in helping them build their online strategy, and then running these multi-million dollar tech projects to actually execute on that strategy.
0: Yeah. it's interesting that period of time, so I was on, you know, my background is about I was, I started Anderson, and I was with the, Kent Leventhal, I got bought by ENY and um and yeah, I used to track like you are now, actually even more so. Just way more now than and then. All the sort of dot com startups that were within real estate. And I actually have a slide I should send you. And it has there was about three or four of them. It was like you know owner operator and construction ones and and uh, and all that. And of course, looking back on that, there were like three that survived. But it was a different period for different reasons, which yeah. I'm sure we're gonna you know, we're gonna talk about. And so much of it was about you know we'd say in Y we're trying to put the commerce back into dot com. <laughs> kind of funny, right? Because it it left, but sort of left behind, and, yeah. and that was sort of its gap. But it was it was amazing how much money was going out, right? Yeah, huge amounts of money. Yeah. So interesting. So you 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 were there until four, and then you go to Harvard. So what what made the decision to go to Harvard? And going to Harvard is a big deal.
1: Going to Harvard is a big deal. Yeah, it's
0: a very big deal.
1: So. Um, you know, I think I'll cite my first cousin that I told you that went to BU. He, I maybe I followed in his footsteps a little bit. He went and he was at Harvard also before I was, and so maybe part of my inspiration was, um, you know, someone you know you know can go do it, then it gives you the confidence that maybe you can too. So yeah. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I I knew I wanted to do something different. I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. Um, and I guess like many people going to business school, you kind of go to see what else is out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and but you know, I knew that having had this experience of working with the C-suite executives at all these different firms that and having the opportunity to look strategically at what they were doing and in, and, and, you know, how we kind of went, took them from offline to online there's a lot of inefficiencies in a lot of people's processes mm-hmm. that I felt like there are big opportunities to change. So um, so I knew I wanted to think about that a little bit more in you know, business school. Felt like a great way to do that. I actually was a bit at a crossroads because, I, like I said, I, I knew I wanted to do something. I had some a really good experience on this sort of renovation and fixer-upper kind of mm-hmm. things. And and I sort of was thinking I'm, I'm going to do one or the other. I'm either going to go to business school or I'm going to buy a bunch of properties and start being a, um, a, I don't know, fix and flip and start a company on that. And uh, as and I said, like, so I'm going to apply. Be um, really uh, stuck up about it. I'm going to apply to Harvard and MIT. Mm-hmm. And if I get in, I'm going to do that. And if I don't, I'm going to th- figure out something else. And so um, luckily, I got into both. And, Nice. Um, chose to go to Harvard, and that was a really amazing experience. Um, you know, I think you learn about what everybody else is doing, too, and you learn about everybody else's jobs, and you learn about things and opportunities and careers that you never even knew existed. Sorry. And um, I think you learn a lot about uh, building confidence and capability and uh, strategy and time to think and time to network and time to play. and. Oh, that was really
0: good. So we talk about with Boston University being I mean Harvard even m- more so. And so for kicks, I kind of I, I went on to the Harvard side and was mm-hmm. like looking at who graduated in 2016. And some people did quotes. 2006, huh? 2006. 2006. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you better if I said 16. Right? 2006. Sorry. Right. And um, uh, you know there are people at quotes and you look through, and some of these people you know, and some of you didn't. But also you look back and. You look at what the roles these people are. There's a guy named uh, Inigo, MRB guy, I can't say his name right, from Spain, who's CEO of a large company. There's actually a couple people that were on the real estate side, some of which we know, and, and I'm curious, we'll talk later on if they're gonna come up. Got a partner DY EY in the UAE. You've got uh, FetchMD, which is a pretty interesting company not related to real estate. There's a person there, I don't know if you know them or not. Madison Mays, I think, is the name mattis ruiz have you ever i don't know if you remember but anyway I started going through and it's like this who's who of people in senior positions and like fortune 100 companies or in startups actually that are pretty interesting but the diversity is unbelievable mm-hmm. actually when you look how many people are in that program 800
1: it, about 800 okay. in the class
0: yeah no i'm guessing like it's like you're in chicago and i'm naming people and yeah. you know them. <laughs> yeah right
1: no there's, but, yeah it's a pretty big class um you know, I mean, what the, the beautiful thing about having a big class though is that it does have, a, a, it does it does lend itself to a big network. Yeah. And I think a pretty special thing about that school is that, you know, we we'll, we'll all take each other's calls, mm-hmm. and so um, so that big network leads to another big network, and, right. and so on. So, um, yeah. In fact, you know, I've I, I you know we all get busy with life and things like this, but I've. Um, uh kind of just as you said, you know, met up with old friends, kind of mm-hmm. in similar circles you know, years later, like that I had lost touch with. And yeah. some of them actually become investors in our fund. Oh, interesting. <laughs> we become, uh, yeah. you know, we have become, become business partners and, yeah. you know, stay friends and become partners. So that's uh, that's been a great thing.
0: And so you finished, sorry, I said 16, but in 2006. And then uh, talk about Ball because that's where you went next, I think.
1: Well, so in between there, um, during my first and second year in business school, I did an internship at a small buyout shop. It was actually a search fund for people who might be familiar with that um, but uh, but we were doing kind of a roll up strategy of looking at legal services companies yeah and um, during that process, I came across a deal that was too small for them that I decided to run with personally, mm-hmm. which was a tech company that happened to be in the real estate space.. Oh, okay. And so I spent my second year of business school um, lining up investors to buy that company and um, you know, helping getting all these smart business school students to help me build a strategy and a role plan yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, for, for starting this company or, or uh, expanding this company rather. And um, long story short, it ended up falling through. Uh, But that's when um, I met QBall because they were actually on the other side of the table trying to buy the same company. Okay. So. um, And why did it
0: fall through? Was it just trying to get, like, I'm curious at at that stage in your life, how you find investors? Like, where did you go?
1: um, Well, that's another beauty about going to Harvard Business School. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So you have an opportunity to meet a lot of potential investors um alumni you know, or alumni, people that are active professors okay. active investors, active alumni yeah, I mean like it, there is a whole search funds in particular were a somewhat popular model at that point what it what it really is about is um is basically uh, this idea of the principals will raise a fund to go and do a search for a company, often these companies are in maybe more uh very non sexy businesses typically, mm-hmm. and the idea is that maybe a baby boomer is running it, or someone who's just gotten to the capacity can't go any further, and um, and and the search funders will buy the company and you know, look to expand it. So whether that's through roll ups or some other growth strategy, yeah. but um, look at look at doing that, and then the original investors will have the opportunity to um, you know to invest in that acquisition at some preferred terms. Mm-hmm. So that's the concept of the roll-up strategy, and there's a number, it's, it's not super common, but it's not so, you know, there's there's a number of uh, mm-hmm. sort of usual suspects that get involved in that kind of thing, and mm-hmm. so those were the type of investors that we were interested in what we were doing.
0: There you go. There you go. And then let's keep going. If we keep going forward, then...
1: Uh... So the deal fell through. Um, it's very common in trying mm-hmm. to buy a small business. The woman who owned the company um she, she kind of just realized that she didn't know what she would do with herself if she sold it
0: yeah huh.
1: so she's still running the company today <laughs> <laughs> the company's about the same as it always was yeah um and uh but you know a very nice lifestyle business for her and and so um so that was that and uh joined forces with cuba once we kind of got to yeah, once we got to know each other. And right. so we were focused on early stage consumer and information media mm-hmm.
0: businesses.
1: Yeah. Um, they had a number of investments. Uh, so lifestyle brand businesses, information media, things like this. And um, in 2008, my husband started a position at University of Chicago. So that's what brought us out here. That explains the move, yeah. And nice. um, at Cubal we had Mason recently made an investment in Epic Burger, mm-hmm. which is a um, fast casual mm-hmm. restaurant chain now in Chicago. So I moved out here, stayed with Q-Ball for about the first six months and really helped launch Epic Burger. Mm-hmm. Kind of did everything but flip the burgers. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and then- uh, Definitely
0: thinks the glamour of the investment side, right? Yeah, right. right. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's all coming out, yeah.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I was like counting, I was counting ketchup packets and um, you know, wondering why we were ordering packets with spoons included when there was nothing that you could eat a spoon with. So, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So um, the chef hated me because it was a chef-founded restaurant uh, yeah. because I kept like I was I was picking at that stuff and he was like I just want to make the damn burgers. <laughs> but, anyways, um, yeah. So, but but yeah. So so I um, so I stayed with Kiba for about six months. We moved out here and then came across uh, the opportunity to um, uh, this is uh, you know really came from the Harvard Business School Network that the National Association of Realtors had Mm -hmm. recently uh, taken about 50 million dollars off the table with the IPO of Move Mm -hmm. which is the parent company for Mm realtor.com and they were looking to invest in technology companies in and around the space. Yeah, it's so, like a perfect
0: match. It's right? a perfect like, match. Yeah. So, the background and yeah.
1: Assist. So the uh, the per- so I so I joined them um, and basically launched a fund for them starting in 2008 called Second Century Ventures and really pulling together the real estate tech and um, you know operational experience and venture experience all together.
0: Yeah. And then so, you left three years ago to start Modern Ventures then yeah yep. what made you decide to make the transition was it a matter of just sort of running the time on
1: yeah so fully right? vested the fund
0: yeah what are you going to do
1: so and um you know, despite that, I would made them fifteen times their money. They decided they didn't want to <laughs> launch a new fund, <laughs> <laughs> and so
0: it's comforting. But anyway, hey, like, they're almost next door to us, by the so way, Were you like, not? Yeah, or actually, which side? Um,
1: exactly next door. To us. Yeah, exactly. He <laughs> <So,
0: laughs> didn't go far. Um,
1: yeah, so they, uh, you know, so I think that they, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, NAR is a, uh, you know, they're they're a they're they're a trade association, right. and so their priorities are to, as they should be you know, to um, you know, be focusing on the political action and things on behalf of their members. And this was a cool but ancillary thing. And you know, they, they were, you know, they're very happy to get the returns to support their <laughs> support their other initiatives, but they weren't gonna put additional dollars into a new fund, so. do you
0: look at the change in that space and what's occurring, and especially to actually argue even more so in the last couple of years, exponentially in, from my standpoint, it's huge right yeah yeah absolutely. it's like unbelievable not absolutely. that it wasn't a lot of change before but that whole thing seems like it's really getting reinvented in a lot of ways yes the model's close to breaking yeah well i mean
1: yeah. and that's that's the you know kind of exciting part about you know I'm hiring some people right now and we were just talking about you know what what this has been and where it is and where it's going and it kind of just dawned on me. I've been doing this for a decade now, and I, right. you know, I've all, I can say that I'm no less passionate about it than I was 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think it's just gotten much more exciting because people have gotten more into it, and more uh, they're grasping it more. As I said from the beginning, I, I liken this to this stage of where I was when I started my career. You know, where the Fortune 500s were like this internet thing. You know, it's coming. You know, real estate. Groups now are saying, "Oh, this tech thing—it's—it's it's here. <laughs> like, I got—I yeah. got—I got to get on board now." So, um, so I think that's the really exciting part about it, and um, you know, a bit about the fund and you know, the model that we have and why we have it. So, launching a fund, you know, going back to two thousand eight, um, yeah, is an interesting time, right? So, mm-hmm. two thousand eight—the world is falling apart—and I'm starting a venture fund. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so the good news is I have money. The bad news is um, the world's falling apart. So, um, so I'm looking around and I'm seeing you know all these firms exit. They can't sustain their portfolio. They're getting crammed down. You know all these things, and I'm trying to think. I'm thinking to myself, how can I create something that's going to be um, that has longevity? That's going to be able to withstand these cycles and and um, you know really be successful. And so you know, that's really kind of the notion came to me. Well, if I can help build customers for my companies that's going to be the most valuable thing Mm -hmm. i can possibly provide and if i can really create the best uh, if i can really bring the best companies into the industry then the industry is going to use our companies. That's going to add value to them strategically. It's going to add value to our companies, and therefore, it's going to add value to our fund.
0: So the tide rises for all. That's but, right.
1: Yeah. So that's um, that's uh, entirely what we built the fund on top of, and then the philosophy mm. of the fund. And at that time, started building a network of executives and corporations, which mm. is now about seven hundred or so strong mm. of people who are literally active each year in our um, in our fund and participating in. Uh, mentorship of our companies and pilot programs that we put together. And um, you know, many of them are investors and they're hosting us at events. And you know, they're just a very active group of amazing executives from all asset classes, from all the largest real estate firms in the world. And um, bringing them together with these companies that are trying to change their world. And it's really exciting.
0: Well, I think, and I, and I agree, and it's interesting with the space, you um, Because there's a lot of people, it's almost like a 12-step program, right? They realize there's something wrong, and and then they eventually realize that they need help Mm -hmm. and that they need to do something, right? And uh, you end up in those environments normally with a lot of people trying to fill that gap, and you get a lot of uh, folks in there almost, I'm going to be negative in a way, but not in your case, they're almost like the old wagon medicine guys coming through town, That I have the cure, Mm -hmm. and then you've got the people that really do have the cure, And 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 it's interesting. Sort of sitting back, and you do too, I'm sure. It's always watching, sort of the movement and the noise, and you know it's far more productive than not. But when you look at that, and you say, okay, if you're on the on the on the owner on the investor side or on the owner side or whatever term you want to use, you know clearly one of the things you're doing is trying to mine that land, you know, that, those landmines, in effect, or help them navigate through that in a productive way. Um, but who do you, and I've asked you this before, but not in this context, or at least not as, as we're sitting here talking now, you know, when you look at the competition, when you look at things that keep you up at night and sort of navigating the space, what is it actually?
1: The things, honestly, that are keeping me up right now is that we have no lack of Opportunity and more a lack of resources to meet it. Okay, that's fair. So I will say that you know when when I said that people are really kind of grasping on to this tech thing and realizing that it's here, I really mean it. Like we we had our LP meeting recently, and I went through looking at how many mentors or you know how many people of our in our network were active participants last year versus this year. Mm And it was about 400 last year, and about 700 this year. It's huge, yeah. And it used to be that we would go out and recruit industry executives, corporations to be mm-hmm. part of this, and they are now all coming to us because I think it's just what you just said. They're 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 in the they're in the we recognize we have a problem stage, mm-hmm. and what we need to try to figure out collectively is how to get people to take action stage, mm-hmm. and so. I think that they all recognize there's a problem and they want to do something about it. And um, because of this sort of demand, you know, people have been coming to us saying, "Can you help us? Can you help us?" We're we're a slow moving ship. We're a culture of you know, we've been around for over a hundred years, yeah. right? There's companies in this industry that've been around for over a hundred years. We don't know how to change. <laughs> you know, like, um, there's people who don't want to change. We have lifers and you know, there's there's all these things. And so, how do we build? Innovation in our culture. How do we actually make it happen? And, you know, the fortunate thing is, I mean, I've, I've, I've Been working with those companies my entire career, right? So I started out consulting for Fortune 500s and I've been in corporate venture and I've been in regular venture and I've been operational in these in these companies startups and so I kind of can feel the pain of everybody and um, And as does the team, you know, people from the team come from all these places too and so um, at, at, Or at least subsets of up. and so when so what's what's a kind of a beautiful thing is is we can sort of create this advisory that helps companies think about how do you adopt this innovation and how do you adopt some how do you work with some of these startups and how do you actually use them to make a difference not just as an investor and our investment ROI but in their bottom lines to their investors and their strategic ROI and so um, so we started to pull that together and um, I think that the, you know, my, as I said, that the mantra of the fund is really to think about, if we can help them, that's going to, you know, help our companies, that's going to mm-hmm. help us. And so, you know, the the sort of thing that keeps me up at night is just how to do this most effectively, and how to do it in a way that, um, you know, the, the network has gotten so large that I want to make that we're addressing a lot of things, but we're, you know, I'd like to be, uh, make sure that we're addressing them well. And that's always a challenge i think of any yeah. growth company but that's kind of where we are i suppose We
0: well, you would say ideally like try to get the great i guess the greatest lift with, with not it's not about not making the effort but just getting the greatest lift out of the effort that you're that you're providing exactly you yeah. know the other thing that's interesting too is you look at it's a funny space right so i used to say technology and real estate was an oxymoron mm-hmm. for years maybe we're we we may finally be able to not say that but you know, I think a lot of your interactions and, and a lot of the awareness, I think, relative to your brand, you and, and Modern Ventures, is at that CXX level, right? You're you're operating at the senior yeah. level which is where you should be. And it's been such a transaction-oriented business because the real money historically has been made, not in the operations, but on a leasing deal or an acquisition or disposition or something else. And now they're realizing, one, for the institutional stuff and the money coming in, mm-hmm. they got to get more sophisticated. But it's not just that. There's actually money on the table. Yeah. That you know might add up to pennies and nickels, individual properties, but ends up being pennies of earnings per share, which right. you know, drive these guys. And so, you know, one of the trends I think and it's a question coming up is, you know, I think they're struggling with that. So there's a lot of people going out and saying, "Okay, I'm going to create this new position called the Chief Digital Officer, and I'm going to go out of the space because I just can't take it anymore." In some ways, and so whether it was JLL or Prologist or Cadillac Fairview, yeah. or and I say this in a positive way is they've gone out and say. I'm going to get someone, you know, maybe it's an, an existing big name, uh, high growth tech company like Google or whatever it may be, and try to use them as the change agents yeah. to effectively drive that. I mean, you, you're seeing that then. And do you interact with those CDOs or do you interact with, like, where do you sit actually and, and, and who do you interact with to affect change?
1: I mean, I would say all of the above, but I think that the... the yeah, the best practices, if you will, of, of how this works, when I mean, you need to see XO, a CEO buy-in, really. I mean, first of all, first of all, you need to recognize the issues, right, yeah. and and recognize the opportunities. And so so the, the buy-in has to happen at that level, and that's where you start, but then the implementation has to be bought into through the rest of the organization, yeah, right. too. And so, you know, the clients or companies that we're working with on, on that side is, you know, we're, we're really trying to recommend that people create innovation teams. So mm-hmm. whether that's under a digital officer or, a, you know, a C- it's I think it's starting to come out of the CTO office mm-hmm. and more into the maybe COO office mm-hmm. or, you know, the business organizations. But, yeah, you know, but it all depends on the structure of the company. But anyways, um, you know, really having, having at least a, a real innovation team that has the mandate that they're you know, salaries and their bonuses structures rely on to actually create change within the organization, and both to you know identify what those problems are, um, be able to help assess which solutions are going to make most sense for them, be able to work at the property level to implement pilots and you know mm-hmm. kind of test and measure the measure the success and build the recommendations and things like that. there's a lot of that that we can help with and we are helping with but at the end of the day all the you know ownership and execution of it has to happen Mm -hmm. within the organization themselves and Mm -hmm. so um we're helping to instill some best practices but um but the 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 practices themselves have to be embraced throughout the organization
0: yeah that makes sense i think you know the other interesting trend is if you go back over time and there's a generalization but everyone was so asset specific and, and, and what's happening, I think, based upon sort of the broader sort of market, when you want to call them consumers or residents or employees or whatever, these much cross-asset, right, mixed things. So we said like Brookfield Place, as an example, the Dick Irvine Company in Newport Beach or others. And even you now you've got a lot of the retail guys doing residential, which hadn't, right? Yeah. And so not, not the open center guys were doing it, the mall guys were right. doing it. I think General Growth just announced at Northbrook, actually, north of us, right, in Chicago, about opening places there and so
1: now the multifamily is now getting into SFRs. Correct. It? So, yep. It's really interesting,
0: really mm-hmm. right. And so I gotta believe also that it 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 plays to your strength because I think, you know, part of what you, you you try to do over time is you're resourcing things that were maybe outside the space that now applied within the space. Yep. So and then, you know, you look at individual categories, and I think about like tenant engagement's really interesting to me and it's a hot topic in different ways. And You'd already residential was already kind of there for different reasons. Not necessarily technically advanced on yeah. mobility, but at least as far as the tech part of services. The retails did out of survival, right, when they yeah. got clobbered in 14 and 13 with the shift in behavior. And now the office and industrial guys. There's a lot of commonality across some of these solution sets, which, again, i got to believe... You know, where you place your bet and make investments on the tide rise is just that much better, right? Because it's not like it's just a residential solution right. or just a retail solution. Right. Like, no, you can actually use this regardless of your asset yeah. class. Is that a fair comment?
1: Yeah, and in fact, if it's only specific to one asset class, we generally won't invest in it. Yeah. We'll generally pass in it unless there's a, you know, big consumer play uh, aspect to it. Um, you know, we believe the bigger the market, the bigger the returns and, so, um, and you know, we, we have a lot of examples of competitive companies that we've passed on in favor of companies that did go cross verticals, cross asset classes, cross verticals mm-hmm. and, you know, um, had a lot of success with that. So, yeah. so, we, uh, so that, that is a core part of our
0: strategy. And it should be noted, we passed it, but you were early in DocuSign.
1: Yep. You're going way yeah, back. Yes, so that's a very... And that was in the
0: down cycle. If I'm, It was yeah. like it was during the, right? And that 2009 was that, or... 2009, 2009 was, okay.
1: yeah, so I made the investment in 2009 and that was the, yeah, that's a big pinnacle for the purpose of this strategy it was, mm-hmm. you know, DocuSign, real estate revenues back, so 2010, 2011, that's when like the real estate cycle started really going down and sort of generally comes after the the rusts and so you know about their their real estate revenues went down about 40 percent which is about the same amount of um uh, percentage that the realtors went down yeah. during the same time period and so i remember that one of the fellow board members at docusign looked at me and he said are you happy with their real estate performance and i was like well no but look at look <laughs> <You Yeah. know? laughs> look at the stats it's, yeah. you know I mean, what, like what do we expect and you know the the reason why you know DocuSign became what it did is because they had other verticals that they were mm-hmm. focused on also. And you know had it had to sustain itself with real estate revenues alone, it you know may not have may not have done it. Yeah. Um, and so when we looked at competitors in the space, and you know one of them sold to Zillow for 100 million, and one of them sold to mm-hmm. Fidelity, or, yeah, Fidelity for 40 million, about that. Um, and DocuSign IPO'd at four point four billion this year, um, and trading at over eight billion today. Uh, I just happen to know. Um you know, that that's that's very evidence of you know why we have this strategy. That's and a great so story. um you know, and I, I can name a couple other examples of you know more recent investments that we've done in in a similar way. So you think about Hello Alfred. For I'll give an example of Hello Alfred and task Easy, two mm-hmm. companies that are very different from one another in many respects, but a couple characteristics that are the same. So, Hello Alfred is a, um, a kind of concierge butler service platform focused right now initially on the multifamily space, but you know really helps provide a hospitality and and. Um, other services to you know back to that customer uh, resident experience, yeah. right? But but truly, what they are is a um, operating platform for a building. So they'll go in and they will you know they'll they'll tidy up a unit. They will get the groceries and put them in the fridge. Mm-hmm. They'll get the dry cleaning and put it in the closet. And you know the the resident can go on the app and say get mom flowers for Mother's Day. So just kind of all of life's little chores. Mm-hmm. And so they'll take care of that, which gives everyone back their time and makes it more compelling to stay in that building. Um, but they'll also take care of all the packages and all the you know a lot of um, a lot of kind of biz building operational aspects too. So has both has both. Um, TaskEasy is a lawn care and snow removal platform. So not sexy at all, but they've mowed over two million lawns across nine thousand cities and 50 states, and it's a single platform that. Um, uh, operator can put or an asset manager can put all their portfolio companies on or all their, their entire portfolio properties on and, mm-hmm. and have one place to go to get that all done. Alright, so what what's the commonality between these? And you know when we look at sort of um, competitors in their spaces, each of them have competitors mm-hmm. and each of them, the competitors that we saw are very regional. They're not a whole lot of backing behind them. Um, you know, seed stage or bootstrapped or you know some angel investing behind them. Um, whereas when we came into both of these companies we could see that uh, both they were scalable on a national level or they were already national um, they were backable and had teams that were able to execute mm-hmm. and so you know they had some of the top tier venture funds in the planet behind them they had you know tens of millions of dollars behind them already coming in but uh, but those top tier venture funds behind them is what can kind of keep them Going mm-hmm. and you know to give them the bandwidth they need to actually scale on a national level, and um, an amazing team. So, so we think about that too in terms of you know what's the capabilities of these companies as they um, as they expand and when they get these national contracts. We need to work with companies that uh, a national or even international player, if they say they want to use that company, the mm-hmm. company has to be able to say yes. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's kind of the baseline of criteria of which we, you know, we'll look at a company is you know, if our partners want to use them, they have to be able to be able to say yes.
0: Anybody you passed on that you regret? Right?
1: The, um, so there's a number of companies more recently that we've, that are even in our portfolio today, but they are raising rounds at such large valuations. Mm-hmm. That it pains me to pass on them <laughs> but we are um, you know we, we won't underwrite to anything that we can't see a clear path to 30% IRR yeah and some of these companies you know great teams great market opportunities great things you know if they've got less than a million revenues and they're raising a hundred million dollar valuations yeah. it's hard to see that clear path and so, you know, I don't know how that turns out exactly, but, you know, maybe we're wrong, but...
0: But normally, you see, if, it, if the idea is good, it's, it, it lasts, and but it gets recapitalized a couple times in so the process. That's, so, that's, so do you wait for theory. Your, you wait for the opportunity. And now I feel theory. like in the next two years or less, we're going to start seeing some of those because you're seeing some folks...
1: We are, we're already seeing. Okay, on my
0: side, where the pricing, they're coming way up to try to make their hurdle rates and they're not... Yeah. They're, they're outpricing the market and that's the start yeah right? exactly. and then demand goes down great idea so if exactly. if maybe you're already doing this someone should literally have a distressed fund yeah waiting for some of this activity yeah. because there's some good stuff that's going to that's going to be yeah. out there to either acquire or consolidate yeah. or integrate or whatever yeah right?
1: I mean I, I would say that you know we're we're deploying capital somewhat uh slower than I had anticipated initially because we just won't do those deals yeah. and but we are already seeing a come back I mean I've had a i passed on a year and a half ago that was at a 70 million dollar valuation and um I, you know maybe the company but yeah so i, I thought it was too high and they came back this week in fact they're at 23 25 million real revenues not even a run rate real revenues and they're pricing in the teens yeah and um yeah, I, I three and or four examples like this so. is isn't hard
0: normally for that first round of recapitalization for people to realize reality i always feel like it happens twice one goes in but they're still optimistic and you got to be patient yeah. and you get them on the second i don't know yeah. I, that's what it seems like normally
1: yeah you know? well i mean in this case you know i think they raise a debt round they raise some of the and then you know so we're in their like third round and the you know insiders are yeah. insiders are tapped or tired and yeah yeah. So, That's anyways, a, we're seeing a bunch of these come back, and so then, then you have to figure out, well... What's is, the value? What's man? the value? Not yeah. only what's the value, but, like, uh, you know, if if people, like, yeah, like, what's the real, what's really... You got to pull... You got to spend... You know, I mean, you always have to look under the curtains, but, like, um, really understand, you know, why? You know, why would something in a $25 million revenue get priced in the teens? You know, what's, what's, what's wrong? <laughs> and so, in some cases... Yeah. In some cases, it's just the original thesis; they just price too high. In some cases, yeah, this is a company that's going to
0: zero, so it's you got to figure yeah.
1: out which one. So,
0: yeah. well, we're, we're almost we're gonna run out of time. We're running long, so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask one question I ask everyone else. So, if you're gonna give your 20 year old self advice, what today? What what would you say? So, you're in Boston University and you're embarking on a career and about to graduate, and you will say, what? Good question.
1: Um, Advice I would give my 20-year-old self. I think that it took me longer to gain confidence in what I could do than it took me longer than it should have. Mm -hmm. So I think I probably would have given my 20-year-old self the advice to give myself more credit.
0: That's fair. You've got one of the more concise but better answers. I've <laughs> had some other ones. It's all good. Well, I want to thank you for the time. I really appreciate it, uh, as always, hope our paths cross again. I want to thank GPT Advisors for sponsoring this, and wish you all the success.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks.